Welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. My name's Andrew Nesbitt. And I'm Alex Pounds. And together we're exploring the technical details of package management, the stories and the history of various projects and the communities around them too. Before we get started, just a quick announcement. I'm helping to organise a package manager dev room at the FOSDEM conference in Brussels next February. If you're interested in speaking, you've got until the 1st of December to submit a talk. You'll find a link to the call for proposal in the show notes. Today, we're joined by Brian Fox, the co-founder and CTO at Sonatype, who maintained the Maven central repository. Brian, welcome to The Manifest. Thanks for having me, guys. So Maven is in many ways a Java package manager, but it also encompasses some other languages too. Could you tell us something about that? Yeah, it's uh, it's almost exclusively Java, but we do have people that have used it for various C libraries. I mean, a lot of the stuff also includes JavaScript. There's the WebJars project that puts JavaScript into Maven components and, and downloads them. But you know, for the most part, Maven, the Maven central repository is, is primarily Java. Uh, people on-prem tend to use Maven for all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, we've seen it used for movie files or uh, firmware for handset devices, some that aren't in business anymore. But <laughs> we have seen it used in lots and lots of places. So what about some of those more typical uses? How does Maven fit into the Java ecosystem? Maven, um, in many ways, is almost synonymous with building modern Java applications. In the early days, there was Ant, which is more of a procedural build system. Back then, I'm talking early 2000s, people would go have to figure out the dependencies. They would download them. They'd throw them into a lib folder and tell Ant, just include star.jar <laughs> into your application. And, and everybody had multiple applications, and they always included all these uh, random jars, and nobody knew what they were or why they were there and were afraid to pull them out because they might break at runtime. So Maven came out of an Apache project called the Apache Turbine Project, which actually doesn't exist anymore, but basically seeded many other Apache projects. And it was more of a declarative build system where you declared uh, information about what you want using a convention over configuration approach. And uh, Maven has a life cycle so if you say I'm building a jar, it knows that you first need to pre-process resources and then you compile them and then you run the test steps and those types of things, integration tests, and ultimately then the packaging, right? So Maven has a has a defined lifecycle for all these things and plugins can attach themselves to various places in the lifecycle. So, you know, it, it sort of standardized the build process, made it easier to move from project to project. And also the thing that will probably be remembered forever, if you will, is it really brought the concept of being able to easily assemble applications from components because it brought the dependency management aspects. So a particular library can declare its own dependencies. And so then when you're assembling an application, those things are all pulled in transitively and Maven is able to resolve conflicts and and all those kinds of things. So I think it was really Maven that pushed the envelope on that. And you basically see those attributes in all the modern package systems these days that people aren't downloading and throwing jars into folders anymore or JavaScript files into folders anymore. They're depending on the package manager to resolve it and all its transitive dependencies. And I think that's really the thing that uh, Maven changed about the Java ecosystem. So Maven grew out of an Apache project, but now it's also kind of related to Sonatype, the company you co-founded. Is it still an open source project? How do those two interrelate? Yeah, great question. So Maven, the build system, is uh, still an Apache project. And in the very early days, obviously no popular open source projects were quote unquote mavenized, right? And so we had to go through and write what's called the POM, which is really the build file that it stands for the project object model. We had to figure out what the dependencies were and create those. And so it started out as people sharing the the POMs for important things because that was what was required for Maven to process the transitive dependencies. And in the super early days, uh, that was in a, a giant subversion repository. But then people started including the the jars along with it. And so that you know eventually was hosted at iBiblio, the university in North Carolina. You know then we pretty quickly as it started to become popular somewhere in the 2004 2005 time frame, the bandwidth started to expand see that and it was it was known to be unreliable it became normal that downloads would fail just because we were overwhelming their connection and so 
one of the other Maven PMC members, one of the, the original guys, Jason Van Zale, he got a, a server on his own and basically started hosting that at, at different places at uh, Contigix. Contigix did a lot of donation for the bandwidth. And so the central repository became this sort of separate thing. It was sort of tied to Maven because it was the primary place where you went to go get Mavenized objects. And it was also the default place where Maven projects would consume from and publish too. But it was always sort of separate from the, the Apache project, partially because in the in those early days when we were hunting around for a place to find it, it had things on it that had GPL license, right, which was um, antithetical to what Apache was all about. And so there was some back and forth over where that would be. And so then when we started Sonatype, we just continued maintaining that repository for the community and it's grown tremendously since i mean last year we did 52 billion downloads i can remember the first time you know i I actually met jason face to face was uh in early 2007 i guess and one of the things that i remember coming back with was a copy of central on on my laptop and it was maybe 20 gigs or something like that it's quite a bit larger now we're looking at 5.4 terabytes total space. The, a Maven coordinate consists of basically three parts, the group, the artifact, and the version, right? And so the group would be Org Apache, for example, and the artifact would be Struts or Maven or whatever. So the group and artifact uniquely identifies what you might consider to be a project. There's over 200,000 projects in Central. These days, on a normal weekday, we're getting 3,000 new releases pushed into the uh, repository, which represent over 50,000 objects themselves each day growing at seven gigs we get about 30 new projects every single day onboarded so for a repository now that's going on what 13 14 years old the fact that stuff is being added to it now more than it ever has in the past and that the consumption still continues to go up is pretty awesome yeah i guess you've also got the whole android ecosystem is pulling from the maven repository with gradle Yeah, and it's interesting. I was looking at some of the statistics just earlier this week. Uh, Maven actually only represents 26% of the overall consumption from Central. And so that's why a lot of people mix Maven and Maven Central together because they kind of grew up and they're siblings, if you will. But Maven Central, or what we call now just the central repository, contains all of these things and it is produced and consumed by tools, not Maven. There's uh, repository managers, there's Gradle, there's uh, Eclipse stuff, and a full 50% is just rounded up for other so you've got other build systems like Scala and Leningrin and, and Builder and, you know, take your pick. But it's basically the place where people go to get Java components these days. It happens to be true that the metadata in there is in a Maven format, but any modern tool understands that format. So really, the Maven format is more popular than the Maven build tool itself these days. With so many tools pulling from that central repository, does that cause any problems for Maven? Not really for the central repository. At the end of the day, the repository is was designed to be able to be operated as a static website. And so the tools themselves are producing and munging all the metadata and pushing it out there. This is distinctly different from most of the, the systems that have come since where they depend upon a service or a search. Those things tend not to be as easily scalable. So in the very early days and for many, many years, the central repository quite literally ran from a single machine racked up in central. We now have that machine at Sonatype headquarters in our little sort of museum. I wrote a blog post years ago and we deracked it and they sent it to us. It's like, you know, this is the first time I've seen this machine. I logged into this machine for years. It was just a, a blinking cursor to me. But, you know, I think it served Central for something like six years uh, without ever going down, which was somewhat amazing. <laughs> um, but now uh, we we serve it through a CDN because we're doing such an enormous amount of bandwidth. It's uh 600 terabytes of bandwidth on a monthly basis that we're pushing now. And so clearly, if we were if we were trying to do every lookup through a search, that would be ridiculous. But because the metadata is basically persisted and flat, um, it can pretty easily be distributed like a static website would behind a CDN. I guess maybe a better question would be, does having so many tools pulling from that repository constrain you in some ways, particularly with that Maven format. With so many tools, they've all got to be compatible and you might not be able to make the changes or update the format as you would be able to if it was just Maven. 
Yeah, so one of the one of the annoying things, I guess, over the years, when Maven 2 came out, which was you know, 2004, 2005, something like that, we we versioned the XML structure as POM object 4.0.0. And we are still, all these years later, on 4.0.0 for basically that reason that if we were to change it, it would break compatibility with so many tools. And so in some ways consistency there has been great for growing the repo ecosystem, but has been a, a little bit of a, a ball and chain for the Maven project itself to be able to add new features. You know, if we want to change the way dependency resolution works and things like that, it can break the tools that don't understand it. And so we're working through different ways to be able to sort of decouple that type of information, but it, it, it will represent a, a bit of a, a shift in the the repository, and we're very mindful for for tools like Python, right, had that kind of problem where it kind of split the community. Some of us uh, were working with the Jigsaw guys to try and help, you know, as they're going through the Java 9 modularization to sort of learn from what we've observed over the years of growing this repository and watched as other repo systems have had massive problems. You know, NPM comes to mind where in the beginning it didn't have the scope and it didn't have what Maven has as a group ID. There was effectively a single global namespace. Pretty quickly they ran out of names, but also it creates other problems for organizations where somebody can pretty easily typo squat on a name or if they know that a, a company might be using a name internally, for example, they could go and try to register that on the public repo and hope that they'd accidentally download. The lack of namespacing in and of itself can create huge potential risks in the way people are using these components. And we wanted to make sure that Java and the Jigsaw stuff didn't create similar types of problems. So, yeah, in some ways, having all these different tools is awesome because it drives the, the stuff up. The fact that we've been so stable in the the metadata is a huge part of that. It is why 75% of the usage is tools not Maven. The metadata for Maven is sort of like that universal barcode, right? The UPC code. Everything can read it, but if you were to invent a new one, forget about it. You wouldn't be able to sell your products. So it cuts both ways, I guess. Does the POM XML format allow other tools to add in their own extra metadata or is it validated to ensure that it's only a certain set of allowed fields? No, it's it's fairly strict in there. You can add properties in, but a lot of the elements in the POM are for Maven itself in terms of how to actually do the build. There is a section that lists out the dependencies and some of the other nuances, like if you're using properties in the dependency version, for example, another tool has to understand how to do that. And we've created libraries, and that's what the Ether project is, a standard library, so tools don't have to implement the code over and over. They can just use that to get the right resolution. The Maven project has been around for a long time. How have you seen the development and the usage of it change over that period? That's uh, that's an interesting question. So we're uh, on the third major revision of Maven 3X. As you might expect for an, uh, a project that's so old, the pace of innovation has slowed uh, a little bit, but that's not always a bad thing because then the behavior stabilizes and people understand it. That was always one of the goals of Maven to make it easy. If you, if you have never worked on a project before and you need to build it and it's got all kinds of esoteric build scripts and weird system dependencies, that can be a nightmare. But Maven basically strong-armed people into not doing that so you can come along and build anything uh, if you know how to use Maven. And, and so the stabilization of that is a good thing where people continue to innovate are via the plugins, right? It has thousands and thousands of plugins that do everything you can think of. And those continue to be evolved quite a bit. There is still a lot of core development going on within Maven, performance improvements, trying to keep up with more modern CD pipelines, being able to do parallel builds and those types of things have been the stuff that's newish in the last, say, five years. But fundamentally, you know, if you woke up from a coma since 2005, say, and you know how to use Maven back then, you could use it today just the same way, which I think is a good thing. We've seen a lot of people move towards other build systems in Java. A lot of people tend to like Gradle these days. Gradle gives you a lot more flexibility. 
it depends on your perspective. I'm clearly biased having worked on the Maven project for so many years. I, I think that there is something to be said for uh, that forced consistency, that too much flexibility is in fact problematic when people take it to the extreme, when they want to do something new and fancy. Uh, a build system's not the right place to do it because um, the next guy that comes along is going to go, what the heck is going on? How am I supposed to figure this out? How do I build this thing? For people who have been listening to previous episodes, Gradle is one of those package managers that is Turing complete and allows you to execute arbitrary, I think it's groovy code that the build.gradle file is written in. So obviously I'm not a big fan of that because you can do some crazy things and it can be really hard to introspect and kind of trust the provenance of what actually came out the other side of it. Well, I'm going to ask you to play uh, Gradle's advocate here. What kind of flexibility are people looking for that they might find in Gradle that they don't find in Maven? <laughs> that's a that's a tough question. Um, you know, I think what tends to happen is that people that come at this, rather than stepping back and understanding, can I fit my build system into something that is recognized as the standard? They come at it more, how do I use this new tool to do the thing I'm already doing? And if you approach Maven with that mindset, you're going to lose. Maven's going to break your will or you're going to go find another tool. Um, and that's a little bit by design. You know, we've always said Maven is very opinionated. Uh, I think that's the fundamental thing. You know, if you were sitting down from the beginning, figuring out how do I, how do I just start building something from scratch? I think it's pretty easy to do that from Maven. But if you're coming at it with a project that's got 10 years of crazy ant builds and other stuff like that, and you, you want to do all of those things with Maven, that can be a challenge. If you're willing to roll up your sleeves and write plugins and sort of work within the standard frameworks, totally achievable. But if you're if you're coming at it from a scripting mindset or something like that, you're gonna you're gonna run into trouble. And so I think that's where people tend to look for other solutions. But again, that exact power can lead to unmaintainability down the road. So you have to be careful. Especially when you're looking at, okay, well, we want to run this Gradle file with the next version of Gradle or a different version of Groovy that turns out you can't actually work out what the dependencies are anymore programmatically. And to bootstrap your package manager, you actually need to run the package manager potentially. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Talking of plugins, does the Maven project ever bring any of the really popular plugins in line and make them a piece of the main project? Or is it a case where they're always left kind of like as plugins? Well, actually, most of Maven itself is is composed of plugins. There's just a couple core things, and all of the key things like compilation, packaging, resource processing, all the things that bind into that lifecycle that I described before. There are a set of default plugins that match to that. But as a user, it's as easy to pull in any other plugin as it is to use the core plugins. So there, there pretty much is no in or out group in terms of plugins in that ecosystem. And that default set is chosen to be kind of a minimal feature set, or is it the kind of best practice? I would describe it more as the minimal set. So you need something that knows how to call the Java C compiler, for example. You need something that knows how to package into the jar or the war or whatever it may be. Depending on what the component is that you're trying to build, the lifecycle is slightly different, and the default plugins that get mapped into that lifecycle will be different. For example, if the POM declares a war, then it's obviously going to call the war plugin and not the jar plugin or the zip plugin to do it. But part of what you define in your own POM when you're building your own project are what other plugins need to be attached at different places in the lifecycle. You know, you can say, I want this plugin to run at the pre-compile phase or post-compile phase or the test phase or, you know, whatever lifecycle you want. And so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. For the non-Java developers, could you just explain what a war is? Because you said if uh, your file declares a war and it's not sparking international conflict. <laughs> no, not that. Uh, war stands for web archive. So uh, a war would be the file you deploy into a, a Java application container like Tomcat. It has a bunch of jars in it, but it also probably has HTML and maybe some JavaScript and CSS in a defined location. So that would get unpacked and the web application server knows exactly what to do with it. So you start at the lowest level, you have 
jars, which are literally just all of the bytecode uh, organized in the class files. The next level up would be a war. And um, an ear, an enterprise archive, is comprised of multiple wars. I don't think there's one that gets bigger than that. And they're all really just fancy zip files, right? Yeah, they are all just zip files with a defined standard and metadata inside them, yes. I guess the next level up from that is then a Docker container. <laughs> Good point, yes. <laughs> a, a Docker container with the application server and maybe an ear. So do you have a particular favorite plugin? I'm biased. I wrote two popular plugins, one that's called a dependency plugin that gives you all kinds of ways to manipulate dependencies. Um, But probably my favorite might be the Enforcer plugin. Way back in the day, I was having trouble with developers that I worked with following simple things like making sure they were running the right version of Maven or that they had the right version of Java or, you know, all kinds of things. And so I created the Enforcer plugin and we jokingly call it the loving iron fist of Maven. And it it allows you to create uh, your own kind of rules and plug them in. And so you can basically enforce pretty much anything you want and break a build. So yeah, those are my two favorite ones. They also tend to be really, really popular. And so even though I think it's been, oh geez, maybe 10 years since I contributed code to either of those plugins, I still, you know, when I'm at customer sites, see them in use all the time. That's kind of cool. That uh, reminds me a lot of the episode we recorded with Orta and his project Danger, which is essentially the enforcer plugin, but run as part of your GitHub pull request process. Right. Yes, very similar. So you've been involved in running Maven for a long time now. Do you have any interesting war stories or things that have kind of caused you to pull your hair out in the process of running it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, in the early days, I kind of was spending a lot of time as the the main maintainer of the repository, certainly when it became the Sonatype years in 2007 and to maybe 2010 or so, I was like the guy running it. You know, it was a daily battle preventing abusers. You know, we always had people that would come along and just think like, oh, I don't know, I'm just going to like recursively wget this repository. <laughs> and, and even back then it was quite large. And as a startup, it was expensive to provide that, even though Contigix was giving us a good deal on the bandwidth. There was one particular time where I think our bill jumped from, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars a month to $15,000 the next month. That was a big shock for us. You know, we started looking into it and the traffic was spiking and a lot of interesting stuff. And we ended up having to move from Apache HTBD to Nginx because uh, the number of connections coming in at certain times were just simply overwhelming the system. And so we sort of had this problem where it kind of built and it built and it built until Thanksgiving came along. And, um, you know, I really started looking into what was going on. I can remember sitting on the couch at my mother-in-law's house for an entire Thanksgiving, only stopping to go have dinner and then go sit back down at the computer and uh, trying to figure out what was going on. And it was kind of an interesting thing because it was clearly time-based. If you looked at the spikes, it was almost on the hour, every hour, but there was a distribution to either side of the hour. So it looked like a nice, you know, sine wave, basically. And what we were seeing, you know, I'm trying to filter it all these different ways, trying to figure out, is it, you know, is it coming from these IP numbers? Is it coming from certain tools? We were able to figure out after a while that the usage was coming from people downloading the index. So one of the artifacts in the repository, it's still there today, is actually a Lucene index of everything in there. And a lot of tools make use of that for searching. And so we could see that it was that, but we couldn't figure out why. It was from no central place, no one single IP number or provider or anything like that. And worse, all of the Java agents just said Java. It didn't say like Nexus. We knew it wasn't Maven. We were trying to figure out what it was. you know. And it turns out that it was a, a repo manager. It was a new version that had been released. And over a couple of months, it became more and more popular, which explained why this stuff was growing so you know, sporadically. And there was a bug that every time, every hour when it was supposed to check to see if there was a, an update to the index, it would just download it anyway. And so if you take that and you account for clock drift on people's computers, that explained the sine wave. So it took a long time because there wasn't any information in the in the request to figure it out. But we did eventually figure it out. But it quite literally took me an entire Thanksgiving to figure that out. So what was the solution? We 
we figured it out. We blocked the non-specific Java agent from hitting the index and then talked to those guys and got the bug fixed. Um, and then we've kind of put out a message to tell all the users like, hey, can you change this setting in your config so you stop DOSing central for us? Thanks. Because, <laughs> you know, it was it was costing us a lot of money and bandwidth. So that that's one that I always remember. Um, you know, there was another one. This was probably 2010. 11 maybe uh, we were getting a lot of spikes in the bandwidth and trying to figure it out and scratching our heads and somewhat randomly uh, one of our developers found on a on a minecraft forum that there was some modding kit that had changed their default config to point at central for scala you know we had seen the scala jar being downloaded over and over again and i knew some of the guys over there so i i asked them like hey can you think of a reason why anything would be downloading this Scala jar like all the time? And he's like, no, I don't even know why anybody would be using that. That's like four or five versions old. There's no reason for that. And so after we dug through it, it turns out it was the modding framework for, for Minecraft had a bug in it, similar to the index, where instead of just checking for an update, it was downloading it every single time. So everybody who had a modded version of Minecraft anywhere in the world, when they started it up, it was downloading the Scala jar from Central. And as we dug through it, it turns out, well, they had DOSed their own servers accidentally. And they were like, well, this is costing us too much. Let's just change the URL to download from Central or something like that. And so we eventually worked with them. We got that fixed. And then it reared its head again, probably like nine months, 12 months later, as somebody had accidentally forked the old modding one and like re-released it. And so we had to chase that down. So that becomes daily life when you're a big giant public repository like that, you get all these weird things and you just, you can never figure out what people are intending to do, but yet you're on the receiving end of it. Always use a user agent that is unique to your project. Yes, that that certainly helps. (laughs) We had a similar thing uh, with my project libraries IO became the search API for Bower, the package manager, a little while back where they they turned off their search once they realized that ours was considerably better and wasn't costing them any money, which in itself was not too bad. The Elasticsearch cluster was fine. The problem was when Microsoft implemented autocomplete on package names inside of Visual Studio for Bower projects. <laughs> so anytime anyone typed inside of a Bower.json file, it hit the library search API. And as that uh, new version of Visual Studio rolled out, you could see on the uh, the metrics for hitting the search API that it got very aggressive very quickly and then just smashed a poor Elasticsearch cluster into the floor. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you're part of the club. That sounds exactly like things that have been happening to us for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we weren't even serving anything. That was purely just some JSON of the search response. That's right. It's like when you're releasing software and, and it's talking your server and all of a sudden something goes weird, you can kind of correlate it to, you know, we released that version and this started happening. But when you're only seeing one side of the story, like Microsoft released their IDE, you didn't know that was coming. And it didn't happen all on day one. It's as people update, right? So it builds slowly. <laughs> and they hadn't really announced it as a feature. It just kind of popped up. It was an interesting one to debug. We actually managed to get better technical support via Twitter than via any kind of official means. I mean, back in the day when we were dealing with constant crawling, I spent many, many nights and weekends, you know, looking at scripts and trying to figure it out because I was trying to figure out how do I stop the crawlers from costing us money and slowing down the service without interfering with legit traffic. And and that was a challenge. But I came up with some some ways. I, I put some artifacts in, in the repository that were basically just like hello world, but that were never advertised. And so nobody in their right mind would ever download that. They were literally honeypots. In fact, they're still there. Um, they're called nectar buckets. That was my joke hint. If anybody was actually paying attention they'd probably figure out what it was but you know the scripts when they would see somebody hit that it would fire off an email to me with statistics about what was going on so i could could see like oh yeah this person was downloading things alphabetically or you know you'd see him try to be devious and try to randomize it but you could still tell (laughs) and so um so after a while i got tired of that and basically made it a recursive black hole that once you went into one of those things if you were trying to crawl it you would crawl in infinite circles and it would just slow down and stop so either I would get to it and shut them off or they would eventually figure it out and stop and then come email us and be like, hey, how do 
I, how do I do X, Y, and Z? You know, we don't, we don't have any of those in place anymore um, because of the CDN, but sometimes it was fun. Sometimes it was pull your hair out to try and save, save the bandwidth. One common thread in all of these war stories is costs. How is Maven funded, both in terms of funding development and also funding that ongoing hosting? Well, Maven itself is is a, an Apache Software Foundation project, right? And it's all open source. It's all people that come and sign up and contribute, get karma. The projects themselves are run by what are called the Project Management Committee, the PMCs, which are sort of like people that have been doing it for a while. So that that's how that happens. You know, it's mostly just complete contributions. Sonatype still funds the central repository. We pay for it. It gets pretty expensive, but it's it's uh, something that we do for the for the ecosystem, and it's important for us to keep that going. So we spend a lot of time. We have a team that works on it. You know, as you can imagine, the scale of these things get bigger, the abuse gets bigger, <laughs> all those types of things. I imagine you probably have the most people working on a package manager registry, perhaps maybe outside of the Debian system level package managers. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the total throughput, besides maybe the, like you say, the Unix ones, I, I have to think it's the largest. The NPM repository in terms of actual components downloaded is larger, but that's because there's they're like micro components or one JavaScript file. It would be like the equivalent of downloading a single class file from from Maven. So, you know, I think last year NPM did something like 50 billion components. We did 52 billion, but uh, they're different sizes. The bandwidth is totally different. So if somebody didn't trust in the longevity of Sonotype and therefore the central repository, does Maven have many options for pointing at their own local mirror? Can you do that? Sure. Uh, that's one of the best practices, actually. There's uh, repository managers. It's one of the first products that Sonatype had, you know, when, besides the Maven training in the early days. And that's an on-premise local caching proxy, basically. So it becomes your way of decoupling yourself from, you know, internet outages. And, and it just makes sense to not have all your thousand developers downloading the same thing over and over and over again. So you would do that. It also becomes a place where you host and share your internal artifacts. So in terms of like trans outages, internet, that kind of stuff. With a CDN these days, Central doesn't really go down, Not certainly not like it did in the early days. But we also maintain relationships with the Maven PMC for mirroring backups and things like that. And there, there's a mirror at Google that Google provides as well. It's, it's not used a lot to my knowledge. It's more just there as a backup, you know, just in case kind of thing. But it is very easy to point your Maven build at a different repository. It just tends to be that most people use Central because that's where everybody's publishing to. All of the different open source projects are basically funneling through either one of the forges or they come to a, a Nexus repository that we maintain. That's how they put stuff into Central. So everybody goes there because it's sort of the canonical source, if you will. So talking of publishing to the Central repository, I found it interesting that Maven has quite a lot of requirements compared to a number of other application-level package managers that basically allow you to publish anything with very little actual human interaction. Can you talk a little bit about the decisions behind that? Yeah, you're begging me to get on a soapbox here. <laughs> you know, in the early days of, of Maven, we maybe accidentally, maybe with a little bit of foresight, we kind of set down some expectations of how the repository would work. In fact, it's baked into Maven itself that releases are immutable. Once you put a version number out there, it can't be reused. You know, Even if you were to change it on the repository, all of the assumptions within Maven and the way it caches things locally, it's not going to work right. It doesn't expect it. And so you know, we, we set out from the onset that the central repository was an immutable store. I think it has to be that way. That's why it's so popular, because people know it's, it's effectively like the Library of Congress and Web Archive all in one for Java stuff, right? You know it's going to be there. So that was one of the initial standards. You know, the other thing was that we required the group ID, which is the namespace, to be something that you controlled so that it wasn't just random, that somebody couldn't show up and pretend to be Eclipse. And so those were standards that were put in place in the early days, as was making sure that the artifacts themselves were signed with PGP signatures. Now, it's true that not everybody goes and actually validates the stuff there, but we at least require that you put it in there. We figure if you're going to share your stuff 
for people to execute on their machines and in their builds and in their spaceships and all the stuff that literally this stuff ends up in, you should care enough to at least put a signature on it so that we can validate it hasn't been mutated. And so we got those things right years and years ago. And I think when you start to look at what's going on with application security these days and how people are attacking the repositories with like the typo squatting and the non-immutability that we saw with uh, LeftPad and NPM, right? All of those things sort of I look at those and get really frustrated because it's like, man, you know, if you just followed what was there before, I feel like and sometimes these new package managers come along and, and repeat mistakes of the past that were completely avoidable. And so, yeah, there's a lot of requirements in, in to get things into Maven Central. And I don't apologize for it. And I think the community has come to expect it. Maven is used in spaceships? Not necessarily Maven, but applications built by Maven, certainly. I mean, we know that Eclipse stuff uh, was sent on the Curiosity rover. And so I'm sure a lot of those dependencies that were shipped in there came from things built by Maven. No question about that. This is actually a nice segue into a question I had about the long-running nature of the Maven project and all of that history. Because, as you said before, it is used in all of these different places and often a lot of different platforms. There's a lot more web apps out there now. Android didn't exist when Maven was created. And in some senses, the package manager doesn't care. The package manager is an infrastructure tool in the same way that an IDE doesn't care. Vim doesn't care that you're writing a mobile app or a web app or a desktop app. But do those different platforms have any impact on either Maven itself or the decisions you make around the project? I don't think they have an impact on Maven itself other than, you know, understanding how people want to develop modern applications and the web jars plugins and things like that was a response to trying to uh, bring some of the Maven stuff to NPM or JavaScript dependencies. I don't know exactly the history, which came first, but you know, you see a lot of that. It certainly affects how we think about the things that go into Central, the stability of Central, knowing that it is literally a worldwide resource for Java development. We take that very, very seriously in terms of what we let go in, how we pay attention to it, and, and all those kinds of things. And over the past few years, more and more focus has been placed on application security and the security of the components and, and those kinds of things. And it's a big deal. Earlier this summer, there was a report that a, a researcher had done it was for NPM, but I think it could apply to anything where they were looking at leaked credentials. People had checked in their NPM credentials into GitHub and or were just using a super simple uh, brute forcible attacked passwords. And so that's sort of evidence that, you know, when you're a component developer and a publisher, you're not really thinking down the road of what tremendous responsibility you have or you should take for those things because the left pad is the perfect example right it's a super simple thing but yet the disappearance of it from the repository broke builds all around the world and so imagine what happens if somebody steals your credentials and publishes malicious versions of legitimate components into the repository that could easily find its way into millions of applications nearly overnight and so there is a sense of responsibility that clearly we have as we maintain that repository. But, you know, I, I think it's important for people that are publishing into it to really, really think how do they take their security seriously, that their laptop at home is creating components that could be run on airplanes, uh, on the financial system. I mean, it happens every single day, and I don't think people really think about that. Because if they did, if they realized the responsibility that they had, they might act differently. Talking about security, when a vulnerable version is found on the Maven repository, being that it's an immutable system, how do you go about informing users or trying to help them avoid those insecure versions? I get that question a lot. One of the main areas that Sonatype you know, has products is, is in this area that we help people understand all of the information about the components that they're using in their applications and be able to define via a, a rules-based policy engine you know, what they think is okay and not okay. And because the repository is immutable, because it is so broadly used, we can't simply just decide that, hey, uh, Commons Collections has a vulnerability in it in some cases. You know, whose determination is it that that is universally bad for every single instance? 
You know, because if we literally struck it from the repository overnight, potentially millions of builds would just simply up and blow up. You know, many, many, many of those applications, probably the majority of them, are not actually exploitable. I always use the uh, analogy of, of book burning, right? I mean, just because some people don't like a book does not mean it should not be available in the library for other people to look at. And that's really what it comes down to. So the information that we can provide to help people make better decisions is really the key way to do it. Simply just taking an artifact and making it disappear from the internet is not the right way to solve this problem. And often, I guess, with all the, the compiled jars, that's not actually going to remove it from people's applications if you removed it from the repository with the things that they're already running in production. That's right, because they should have a local repository manager that has already cached a copy of it. All of the Maven systems cache it locally on disk as well. And so even if we disappeared it from the internet, it's still going to show up in applications forever. And worse, what about all the legacy applications that aren't actually being actively built? they're still going to be sitting out there running just as vulnerable. And so that's why we believe sharing the information, providing the information, the inspection and the analysis via the tools, key area uh, of the business. But, uh, you know, book burning, not a good idea. Now, clearly, if there was something in the repository that was clearly malicious, that would be a different story. Outright malicious code, yeah, we can nuke that. I don't think anybody's going to be upset about that. But determining that a component is universally bad for everybody in all instances just just doesn't make sense. So who does get to make that call? To make which call? Whether something is universally malicious or just potentially exploitable. Well, uh, fortunately, so far, we haven't had to make that call that something was clearly malicious, but it would be somebody here at Sonatype, maybe me asking an opinion, you know, if it was not clear cut that we might consult, you know, the community, the Maven PMC, things like that, to get some buy-in before we took some universal action. We, we always think about the community and making sure we're doing right by that and getting a gut check is always a good thing. But so far, to our knowledge, that has not happened and it certainly hasn't been a decision we've had to make yet. Do you have fine-grained analytics around the downloads for each artifact? We do um, through the various forges like at Apache or the one that we provide. We provide those statistics back to the projects themselves so that they can see what the popularity is of their component, what the different versions are. It's also something that we weave into, into our various tools. But yeah, we do processing that, generating those with the amount of traffic we do is a little bit complicated. Maven itself was, you know, the repository, like I said, was designed to work well on a flat file system, which means interrogating all of the stuff and rolling that up and making heads or tails of it is not always easy, <laughs> um, but it is possible. You end up doing a lot of file path manipulation and, and things like that to kind of roll up the statistics. I think the Python project's been doing a little bit of that with Fastly, where they're exporting their traffic logs in anonymized form to google bigquery and they have a public set of download logs where people can then go and investigate for particular traffic patterns or download activity on different kind of modules and i ask that mostly because if you've got that information potentially that can help inform is this malicious package heavily depended on and heavily downloaded or is it does it look like no one's really realized it's there yet and no one would really be hurt in the act of removing it? Right. And and there was a, an attack on the Python, PyPy recently, right? Well, it started earlier in the year with typo squatting on NPM and then somebody did it on Python uh, within the past couple of weeks I saw. Uh, same type of thing. And um, so I got a bunch of questions from the community and from customers asking, you know, what's my take on that? I think in this instance, it kind of comes back to the lack of the namespace that I was talking about before. It's really easy if you only have a single name, say struts, and you want to uh, publish a pretend version of struts, it's easy to typo squat that. But when you're actually looking for org.apache colon struts, it's a lot harder to typo squat that. And because we don't just let anybody show up at Central and just push anything into there under any name, you know, they have to basically ask to become a publisher. And the way that works is we then assign them uh, a namespace. A lot of projects are com GitHub dot project name, right? And so we give them the ability to publish into com GitHub their project name. If somebody has their own domain org dot 
foo, then we would give them the ability to publish components into org.foo. And so that's just sort of how Maven works. It's how Maven has always worked. And so while it's possible somebody could typo squat that, it makes it a lot harder because you have to get multiple mistakes piled up in the, uh, the consumption. And we also double check when somebody comes to sign up. We have a number of different ways that we look to make sure that they in fact control the domain or that the project is what they say it is. So we, we do the best we can to make Make sure, you know, somebody's not masquerading. But, you know, if we didn't have the group ID as part of Maven, it would be that much harder. And that's one of those things that I, I really wish new package systems that came along would really think about that. It feels like a lot of the similar problems to DNS, where trying to decide on should this domain name be allowed where it matches or it's very close to Google, but is using like a, a UTF-8 zero character instead of an O Yes, it's a it's a very similar problem. I mean, in this case, it's maybe I guess it's maybe more like issuing an SSL certificate for a particular domain, you know, making sure that the person asking for the certificate is authorized <laughs> to secure that domain. I think that's sort of an equivalent to what we do uh, before we give you access to just universally publish into a particular ecosystem. Where NPM is more like let's encrypt and it allows you to self-serve. That's a great analogy. Yes, that's exactly it. So Java as a mature project has a lot of different versions that are out in the wild that projects are using. How does Maven help people developing packages to manage packages that run on all those different versions? Great question. For the most part, components built with one version of Java are forward compatible. So something built with Java 5, Java 6 will run just fine on Java 9. And so dealing with the vagaries of Java itself, the runtime is not something that Maven has to tackle. Where we get into that a little bit is sometimes there are requirements that you can set in your palm that my project must be built on at least this version of Java. That's so you know it's going to compile and that you can produce the bytecode that you want. So Maven, the project itself, you know, helps people deal with that. But there's not a lot that we have to do, at least so far, in terms of the Java versions. Now, I mentioned earlier the Jigsaw project from Java 9, which is um, an attempt to modularize the JVM itself. And it produces a first-class concept of of a module, which is very similar to a, a Maven dependency. But it's not quite. And so a lot of the work going on within Maven lately is to try and figure out how do we you know, maintain compatibility with this new model. It really is sort of a shift between, you know, the way the old Java versions wanted just everything on the class path. And so Maven just had to make sure that all the jars were put into place and it was consistent and there weren't duplicates and things like that to now the new Java system when things are using Java modules. It's a completely different paradigm that they have their own manifest which sort of looks like a palm you know it declares what the object is it declares what its dependencies are and so marrying those two things together is quite a challenge and the thing that we were working with some of the the spec leads at oracle on was to make sure that they weren't accidentally creating this shift between the old java components and the new java components that you know that would in in my opinion kill the ecosystem that you you basically can't start java over these days there's so much competition with all the new different languages that are out there where java's power comes from is in fact its heritage that there are so many packages that are out there and all of them can be run on the modern system and if we were to accidentally break that that would be i think a death knell for the ecosystem and so there was a lot of back and forth on that earlier in the year but we ended up working through that and i think it'll be a a much better seamless transition as we move forward so that that people don't have to modularize these old legacy jars to use them in a new application, which was uh, what was potentially about to happen. Interestingly, we're seeing that happen in the JavaScript world right now where the browsers and ES 2016 is introducing its own module spec, which is not compatible with the, I want to say it's CommonJS spec that NPM works with. And what they've actually ended up doing, as far as I've seen so far, and this may be still subject to change, is that the new module files actually have to have a different extension, which is .mjs rather than .js, because when you do require inside of a node project, 
it has no idea whether or not it is a ES4 module or a ES2016 module. And uh, those two things act very differently because basically the browsers have decided what they're going to do and Node has to change to make sure it continues to work with those things. But it means that they've basically kind of splitting it right down the middle. There's new types of packages and old types of packages and trying to make those two things work and be backwards compatible is potentially really painful. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And as you were describing that, I was thinking Maven is somewhat unique in some of these ways that Maven doesn't control Java, right? Java and the JVM is, you know, an Oracle slash open source project and Maven is an open source project. And so we can influence them, but we don't control it when those things change. And conversely, if Node wants to make some changes in NPM, you know, it's sort of much more tightly coupled together. Node at NPM, but not necessarily the the web browsers, which have a slightly different view, especially when it comes to loading things into modules and you're like, well, we don't want to download this humongous amount of things just for the web page. We want to be able to load them all into a single namespace or at least flatten everything out as much as possible. Yeah, that's right. In that in that instance, they don't control the runtime. And so they get whipsawed as well. And so sometimes you get caught in the middle where you're trying to maintain backwards and forwards compatibility at the same time. That's a uniquely package manager problem, I think, in some ways. In one of our previous episodes, we talked with Autotherox, who is one of the people who maintains CocoaPods. And CocoaPods is in this interesting situation where it's used to package macOS and iOS code, and Apple have released the Swift Package Manager, which is only suitable for some use cases, but the writing is clearly on the wall for the CocoaPods project. At some point, everyone's going to switch over to the Swift Package Manager. Is this the same for Maven? Do these jigsaw modules also indicate that Maven's days are numbered? No. In fact, the Oracle team was very clear that their role in this was not to try and replace the build systems. That final package and assembly of and the compilation of an application was clearly not something they were trying to take over. But instead, they were trying to modernize the system to introduce things that the OSGI project has done for years. You know, there's many different um, modular systems that have built on top of Java, and they all have their own idiosyncrasies. And I think they were trying to provide some of those aspects so that they could lighten up the actual JVM itself. So that, you know, if you had an application that didn't didn't need all of the different functionality, that it only fetched the, the core modules required. So no, that there definitely isn't that, not on the horizon for, for Java. You know, on the CocoaPod side, I, I did some research as I was looking into it. You know, some of our customers from the Nexus repository manager side want us to support, you know, all these different formats that on the repo manager side, we're also in this weird situation where, where we have to almost be universally accepted for all these different ecosystems, as well as some of the component management and the security stuff we talked about before. And I was surprised how much Swift open source components are still out there and distributed by CocoaPods. So yes, a default package manager from Apple makes things a little bit easier. I'm not sure that means the death knell to CocoaPods, though. I think it's an opportunity for them to to go beyond and provide a better experience functionality-wise. They'll obviously have to maintain compatibility with whatever happens in the package.swift files, but I'm not sure it necessarily means a, a death knell for them. Well, the maintainers seem pretty convinced that, uh, not not imminently, but certainly on a 5-10 to ten year timescale, then things are moving in a Swift package manager direction. Yeah, anything can happen in 10 years uh, for certain. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the fighting the default effect is definitely an uphill battle. There's no question about that. Another aspect which kind of plays into that is Apple, for all of their wonderful qualities, are not known for their open source work and being engaged with community projects. And I wouldn't particularly put Oracle up there either myself, but... I'm guessing you found them easier to work with. What is that working relationship like between Oracle and the Maven project? I think there was some resistance at first to understanding where we're coming from. I think we were coming from very different angles and it took a little while 
to realize in some cases we were just vehemently agreeing, um, and in other cases we were just speaking a different language. In the history of Maven, we haven't had a lot of cross-pollination between the core Java guys and the spec leads. So they were off doing their thing, and largely we were doing our own thing. This was the first time where we really sort of had this massive overlap in, in uh, domain expertise. And so it was a little bit bumpy, but they kind of took a lot of the data that we were providing from the central statistics. You know, we were able to provide a lot of the data on what were the most popular components and how were their usage patterns related to other ones. And, you know, basically giving them a better picture of what the typical library would look like and how frequently it's updated and how how many different versions there are and compatibilities and, and lots of stuff like that. In the beginning, it seemed like they weren't listening. I think it was actually they were just being very thoughtful. And so in the end, the first version of the Java spec didn't pass the vote. And so it, it was a little bit of a, a, a scramble to go back and, and try to appease the community and, and get some of those things fixed. And they definitely, they involved us. There were two of us from the Maven project that were literally on video conferences with them multiple times um, in, in a week as we worked through different issues. Um, so in the end, they were very open. I think they did a great job. Uh, Mark Reinhold was the spec lead, and I, I really commend him on bringing that to ground and, and finally getting the the spec out. I mean, I can remember uh, 2007, 2008, when it was first announced that they were doing this jigsaw thing. And, uh, you know, we were very early days with Sonatype, and we were very much doing a lot of Maven stuff back then. And I, I can remember feeling somewhat threatened by the jigsaw, like, oh no, is this going to, is this going to kill Maven? Is it going to break everything? Is it going to replace it? It took them a long time to get it done, but uh, it's finally here and all of my fears didn't come to pass. So. Am I right in thinking that in Java, you can only have one version of a module loaded at once? In the old version, in a class path, yes, that's true. Because what literally happens when it's trying to find the class, it will look through all the jars in the order that they appear in the class path. So more advanced systems like OSGI and stuff, they kind of mess with the default class loading and they can do some stuff to allow you to have different versions running at the same time, but they really have to do a little bit of black magic. In the Java 9, the Jigsaw stuff, I believe it is possible to actually have different versions. And that's part of the the trick is how do you how do you take something that was designed to work in a class path and make the legacy aspect of that still work in a new system that is trying to do class path isolation and module isolation? That was really the challenge and, uh, and the devil's in the details and how, how effective that can be. Yeah, and the potential pitfalls that come with that where, especially in an object-orientated language, the objects generated by those different versions of that same module could actually be incompatible with each other. Yeah, I mean, what you end up having to do is build isolation from the top down, right? So if you have a dependency that needs version 1.0 of a logger, and then you've got some other dependency that needs 1.1 of the logger, you need to make sure that, you know, when they make their calls, it's it's loading it in the scope. And so that's where all of that isolation comes to pass. And that's a little bit outside of my domain expertise. <laughs> I know I, I've poked at OSGI and, and some of those types of things that were doing similar stuff. And it's a little bit like black magic. But yeah, it's a really hard problem to solve because that 1.0 of the logger may itself want, you know, 50 other dependencies. And the 1.1 may have, you know, 48 of them are the same and two of them are yet a different version. Yeah, the, the dependency resolution suddenly gets either potentially much more complicated or... You go the way that classic NPM worked and don't even try and dedupe all of those things and just allow each version of each dependency to have its own set of dependencies and end up downloading every version of everything. <laughs> right, and, and Maven, that's one of those things that may have to be altered as, as things go forward, but Maven always did that version resolution for you because it knew inherently that you could only have one version of a jar, or at least Maven would enforce it. You know, other tools may not, and then you get really unspecified behavior at runtime. And so Maven would be smart enough to recognize that, okay, there's this transitive dependency version conflicts with that other one. And so there were heuristics for how to, how to manage that. Not always 
in a way that made runtime work, but at least it would it would make sure that you had one version, and if it broke a dependency or it was unresolvable, it would tell you about it. But you know, if we have to start supporting modules that have uh, potentially conflicting versions, you know, that behavior will have to change, obviously. So Maven is a long-running project, but also you are looking towards the future. What are the things that you're currently working on and thinking about? What's coming up in the near future and slightly less near future for Maven and Maven Central? I think some of the stuff that has to be considered is making Maven better suited for a continuous delivery type of pipeline. You know, in the in the early days, some of the standards or best practices were baked quite literally into how artifacts were built in that, you know, we had this this concept called snapshots and then and then releases. And so the expectation there was that every time you ran a build, say in a CI, a timestamped version of that 1.0 dash some long timestamp would be pushed into the repository. And builds that were consuming snapshots would have a different consumption pattern. They were, you know, typically they would check at least once a day for a new snapshot, but you could change that to every builder every hour, right? And so that's how you would adopt more of a continuous integration strategy. But then when you went to cut 1.0, you know, you would drop the snapshot part, and now that's considered from Maven to be a release. And so if you're looking for 1.0, and I have 1.0, it's never going to check the repository again for a new version of that. That's that immutability concept that I was describing before. But when you start to think about continuous delivery, you almost want to have some traits of snapshots in that every time you publish a new version of it, you don't want to have to run around and change all the consumers to say, now I need 1.1, now I need 1.2, because they're specifying that in their dependency list, right? And so the snapshot was meant to be that way that I could say, I'm depending on this mutable version of it, but there is a time where it becomes immutable itself. If you start to think about continuous delivery, a developer checks in code, it it gets built, it runs through some tests, and then it's in production. How do you maintain the configuration management sanity that comes with immutable and concrete versions, but have the flexibility that snapshots and other things provide. That's an area of continuous evolution. Being able to speed up the builds and do things in parallel, also obviously a key thing as as computers become more powerful and we can do multi-threaded compilation, but making sure that things come back together when they're supposed to be obviously areas of evolution. And then some of the stuff I was talking about before of trying to figure out how do we break away from that 4.0.0 palm object model that's been in place since like 2004 2005 in a way that maintains backwards and forwards compatibility with all these other tools but that you know allows maven itself to continue to innovate the way it it does things so those are always ongoing areas um, for the maven project to tackle the jigsaw stuff java 9 a whole new world there's a lot of work that has been done by a few uh, key people that are you know, making sure that we're compatible. And, and as people start to adopt that, certainly there's going to be lots of new use cases that come up that will drive lots of new uh, either core changes or just new plugins that do different things. And what about other package managers? Do you look around at any other projects, maybe newer projects with Envy? Are there things in there that you wish you had available to you in Maven? Unfortunately, I uh, I more often look at them and go, why why didn't you, you follow some of the paths that were laid out before? I feel like a lot of the rush to produce yet another package manager and to do something new and novel accidentally introduces new challenges like the namespacing that I was talking about and, and some of those other things. The Go ecosystem is one that we're watching closely because that seems to be taking off you know, tremendously. But that launched without a standard package manager, um, which was, I think, the first time that's really happened in a, in a long time. And so in the early days of Go, there was like 20 different competing package managers. And, you know, if you were trying to get into that ecosystem, how would you even know where to start? So it's great to see that they're starting to put together a more of a standard package system for that. And I think that will really help that ecosystem take off. But, um, you know, there's there's not a specific feature that I see that I, I wish Maven had. I think it's actually the opposite. I wish I wish they considered mutability and how, how to maintain the, the central repository with an eye towards the future versus um, what's neat and fun right now. 
Talking of neat and fun right now and immutability, have you considered trying to put Maven on the blockchain or on IPFS, some kind of truly immutable file system? You know, we get questions about the blockchain quite a bit. <laughs> in in the you know the early Sonatype days, you know, we were looking at chain of custody and chain of trust and and some of those types of things. But it's it's not quite clear to me how that all fits together yet. It's something that I ponder um, on long bike rides, but not something that we've uh, started to move on yet. So uh, interestingly, the one of the reasons we started this podcast was actually to try and spread the knowledge around of different reasons and histories behind package managers so that for people who come to build their package manager in the future can hopefully avoid some of the problems that you mentioned by learning from previous package manager builders because there isn't really that much kind of shared knowledge around it there aren't that many people who have been in the trenches building package managers and kind of saying oh yeah well if i did this again i would avoid doing that to try and help uh future people in the same way that crypto a lot of the times kind of you're told don't write your own crypto libraries so there's very few people who know how to write a crypto library yes i think that's great can we make that maybe standard listening for anybody if you want to make a package manager you better listen to all these <laughs> i know at, at one of our product meetups a couple of years ago you know our, our repo team who like i said before is sort of tasked with they, they basically have to support all these new formats because that's what our customers want it's not just about maven anymore it's docker and npm and bower and yum and you know you name it and uh you know they're constantly frustrated with because each one is like a unique snowflake and we were contemplating putting together a series Series of documents and or a blog. I'm not sure it ever saw the light of day, but we did start collecting the list and it was sort of along the lines of, so you want to write a package manager, right? And so if you're going to do that, <laughs> or at least a, a repository format, here's the, you know, the top 10 things to please consider to make everybody's life better. You know, that, that sounds like what you're talking about here. So if people wanted to learn more about Maven and Maven Central and Sonatype, Where's the best place online for them to do that? Well, you can read about Maven at uh, maven.apache.org. You can read the Maven book. It happens to be one that many of us at Sonatype wrote and provide for free. Back in the day when you bought printed books, you could find it in the store. But you can get it online and Sonatype. You can find out all the stuff that we're doing uh, in terms of caching proxies and the repo managers and secure component supply chains at uh, sonatype.com. And if people wanted to get involved with some of the maintenance or development of Maven, where should they look for info on that? At the Maven project, you know, it's sort of grab a shovel and, and start helping. You know, a lot of the Apache stuff is uh, available in GitHub now. So, you know, the modern tooling to pick up and submit a pull request. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Maven and Maven Central and all of the experiences that you've had over the past 13, 14 years working on this project. It sounds like you've overcome a lot of tricky situations and learned a lot about package management. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been, it's been great talking with you guys. And that's all we've got for this week. Come back in two weeks' time when we'll have a new artifact published.